Good everybody, this is Propaganda Anonymous and you are tuned in to the Propanon Podcast. Join me as I explore topics discussed in the work of Robert Anton Wilson and interview some of the coolest people in the world. What do we talk about on the Propanon Podcast? We talk story, we talk symbolic anthropology, crime and criminology, alternative reality games and UFOs. We talk conspiracy theory, comedy, comic books and quantum physics, liberation theology, negative theology, terrorism and music, sex, magic and drugs, psychedelics, housing and love. This is the Propanon Podcast. Tune in. Open your fucking ears, jackass. Hey, what's up, folks? What's going on? This is Propanon reporting for duty. Hope everyone's doing well out there or as well as you can be doing as World War III looms in the distance. Wow. Let's hope humanity can pull it together before we blow ourselves up on this small planet. I mean, shit. Anyway, I'm not here to pontificate on current events. I'm here to bring you another dope episode of the Propanon Podcast. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. And in this interview, I sat down with John Crowley, author of the book, The Yank, the true story of a former U.S. Marine in the Irish Republican Army. John's memoir cinematically lays out his life as an Irish-American kid born in Long Island, New York, to two Irish immigrant parents, to him going back to Ireland as a teenager, then back to America in the late 1970s, where he joined the U.S. Marine Corps, and in the Marine Corps, after four years, got into the Marine Recon Division, the Marines' most elite Army reconnaissance group. After he was released from the military, Crowley went the same day back to Ireland where he worked on joining the IRA. After years as a soldier in an active service unit, he was then sent to Boston, Massachusetts by Martin McGinnis to organize a major gun running operation with none other than the Boston mob. That's right, Whitey Bulger, Steve Flemmy, and Patrick Knee and others in the Boston mob helped John accumulate nearly seven tons of weapons, which he was set to bring back across the Atlantic from Boston to Ireland in 1984. However, an informer behind the scenes played a part in him getting busted off of Kenmare Bay in Ireland with all that weaponry. Our interview gets into all that, but we also talked about the perennial scourge of Irish Republicanism, informers, and British agents. We talk about the revelations that the head of the Provisional IRA's internal security unit, Freddie Scappatici, was himself a British agent, and what that meant to the IRA's war for liberation. We also talk about the troubles from the perspective of a soldier fighting on the ground, and what all that meant. War is a horrible phenomenon, and war over land is something humanity is still struggling to evolve out of. How do we all get to the place where we can share this earth without exploiting or murdering each other? These are tough questions when it comes to the legacy of violence that is the colonial British Empire. For John and others like him, Ireland remains unfree and yet to be a fully united republic. The most important question these days is how do we secure an Irish republic in peace and not war? So without further ado, Here's my interview with John Crowley. So, John, what is Irish Republicanism? 
Well, Irish republicanism is is an ideal, a, a political philosophy based on uh, a civic view of of the Irish people, uh, a citizen based view, as opposed to a more national view, you know, or an ethnic view of the Irish people. Irish republicanism was um, basically well was started in 1791 by the United Irishmen, uh, although Irish nationalism has tended to be uh, associated with Catholicism and the native Irish um, uh, and Irish Republicanism also came to be associated with that. Uh, a lot of people would may, might be surprised to know that the Irish Republican movement or, or, or of the United Irishmen was founded in 1791 by 28 men of whom 26 were Ulster Presbyterians and two were Anglicans, Wolf Tone and Thomas Russell. So it was actually started by Protestants. And uh, these were Protestants of the Enlightenment, unlike, you know, Protestants of, of the plantation who saw Ireland as a conquered country and saw themselves as having a unique uh, and supremacist role in that. But uh, you see, uh, up until uh, the founding of the United Irishmen and the concept of Irish Republicanism, most Irish nationalists wanted uh, the return of a Gaelic aristocracy or, or perhaps even a Catholic king on the throne of England. The United Irishmen were the first to come up with the concept of Ireland as a sovereign, independent republic in its own right, a republic that would transcend the sectarian divisions and uh, break the connection with England and forge a joint uh, civic identity of Irishmen in a national democracy within an all-Ireland republic. And that that's basically what, what it's been about for 200 years and is still about. And did the role of informers have anything to do with uh the the rising not uh happening conclusively at all as always yes of course uh there was a uh a, a leinster executive of united irishmen that were uh formed to uh organize the rising and there was an informer on that and uh you know uh without maybe reading too much into it the executive was composed completely of protestants and the one catholic on the executive was the informer Informers were 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 uh very heavily involved as they almost always are in Irish history. Right. It's, mm -hmm. The Brits get in there and they're able to, you know, the Brits have unlimited resources to buy people, uh, to wait things out, you know, to play the long game. And they get people in in organizations at the ground level and very often, maybe even over 20 or 30 years, uh, get them up to a higher rank in the organization so they can nearly control it. We've done that many times over the years, even up to the present day. Even up to the present day. Yes. I, and, um, you know, that seems to be uh, things that are coming out more and more <clears throat> in regards to the troubles. Um, you know, that time period of 1969 to 1998, I suppose. Um, but um, I think we have a lot to to speak about all that. Uh, sure. But before going, uh, getting too far ahead of myself, I'd like to just briefly touch on uh, the fact why we're speaking, and which is that you're the author of this great memoir called The Yank. Um, which is a, a fun term that the Irish like to call even Irish Americans. They're always the Yank. Yeah. Uh, and uh, no matter how long you've lived in Ireland, <laughs> but uh, the uh, what a great read it is. It's just your, you, you know, your life story from uh, becoming in, uh, like a super trooper with the Marine Recon Division of uh, the U.S. Marines to uh, working with uh, and, and, you know, being a, 
you know, an on the ground operator with uh, the provisional IRA um, and uh, to, you know, your present uh, uh, observations about where things are at today with Irish Republicanism, which there's so much in this book. It's so great. Uh, it's it's so and so well written, too. So I just want to commend you as Thank well. You yeah. Yeah. Um, I look forward to more books. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to try, uh, but it'll probably be next book will probably be a novel. But um, yeah, a, a paper, I'm often asked, did I write the book myself? Or, you know, I did. I wrote every word of the book. The only, except one word, the only part of the book I didn't write was the title, The Yank, the, the American <laughs> publisher. When I told him the story about that was often my nickname, he thought well, that would be a good title. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't that keen on that title initially, but it, 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 I think it worked out. But, uh, why were you not? Why were you not too keen on the that as a title? I'm just curious. I I don't really know. I think um, even though the book was a, a, a an autobiography, I know it seemed to focus too much on me. I mean, I was kind of really focused on the politics of the situation and trying to explain them. And um, but I mean, the book was about me, and you know, so I suppose that's maybe that's a bit silly. But just initially, I wasn't that keen on the title, but I think it worked out okay. And um, you know, that was my nickname with a lot of people. Nice. Uh, and I would, you know, I, as I mentioned in the book, I would often say, well, please could call me that because if we're talking, if there's an informer or we're in a bugged location, you know, you're identifying me. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's it, it stuck. You kind of stuck, you know. And uh, um, there's many people, former members of the provisional IRA, if you ever ask them, you know, who's the Yank, they'll know immediately who you're talking about, you know. But, that's an um, apt title. It was, yeah. But it was good. It was all done in good taste and, you know, and, and with respect. It, it wasn't a derogatory form in any way. But um, I, I guess it's good I wasn't from uh, Alabama or someplace like that. They they might like be called a yank. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But uh, yeah, well, anyway, it didn't didn't bother me. So um, you you uh, you went through the Marine Recon, and uh, from there you say in the book that after four years in the Marines, you left on uh, an early May day in 1979 in the morning and uh you were on a connecting flight out of jfk at 2 p.m to dublin ireland to seek out and join the ira yeah well no well i was on a connecting flight to, to, to new york to, to catch a flight to ireland yeah but i mean i was i was on plane for two o'clock i was the first leg of my my way home to, to go back to ireland yeah so i wasn't wasting any time and you were uh got a job on a building site or you you asked around to to to, to yeah. see if anyone was that what it was you were kind of just asking around did anyone yeah, anyone i got a job my, my dad was a builder and i got a job with him for a while but then i was see i was trying to find out how to join the ira and i found out this guy had been a prisoner uh and he was working on a, on, on a building project so i got it i i got i got myself in there and i kind of uh i kind of uh approached him and talked to him for a few days and you know, he rapidly, he guessed my intentions pretty quickly. And he did try to put me off it at first. You know, he says, you know, it's a dangerous, bad life. And, but I, you know, I, I wasn't for, um, I was, I wasn't going to quit at this stage. So eventually I was approached by somebody in the IRA. They, they heard I was looking to join and, you know, it took a few months and all of interviews and things like that and checking out my background. But eventually I was sworn into the IRA as a volunteer. And this was in 1980. 1980. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long between well, let's talk about your, your your swearing in, yeah. Like, um, because at the time there was the Green Book, and it's my understanding that it was basically Jerry Adams and maybe Avor Bell 
who came up with this notion of the green book and to have IRA volunteers, I guess, just read the green book. Is that, is that. Well, that was basically it in a few lectures because a lot of men were breaking in, in the barracks. A lot of men were, you know, were being beaten and tortured and they were given information. So the, the thing about the green book had the main point of it was to, to give an outline of what we were fighting for and also about security. Security was a major part of it, you know, keeping your mouth shut when you were arrested and things like that. And um, I don't rem remember, it's quite a long time, but that it wasn't too sophisticated. Now, it certainly wasn't a training manual. It didn't train you in weapons or anything like that. And um, uh, so when you were sworn in, uh, it meant, you know, you had to be what they call green booked. You got the green book, then you were sworn in. So basically, technically, you could be executed if you became an informer because mm -hmm. under the IRA rules, uh, if you hadn't been sworn in, you really couldn't be shot for informing. You had to be a you had to be a member, you know. But if you were, you know, it it it, it was basic. It was it was just, it was it was to protect and secure our own organization from infiltration by the British. It was it was a major motivating factor in all this, and to give men some sense of what they were fighting for. What uh, year? Because they're then before Adams and Ivor Bell, you know, of course, many audiences who don't are not too familiar with the history of the IRA and Sinn Féin often associate Jerry Adams, Mark McGuinness with, you know, being the prime leaders of Sinn Féin and, and uh, the IRA, if you will. They're not historically aware of uh, people like Rory O'Brady, uh, you know, Dahi O'Connell. Um, and other leaders of the provisional movement before Adams and McGinnis came on the scene. So I guess that means to say that before Adams came up with the notion of the Green Book, or whoever came up with the notion of the Green Book. I actually don't know who came up with that originally. I, I, it was before my time. And, and, and just to let you know, too, when you join, you know, they don't turn around and tell you who the leadership are. Like, I didn't, I didn't know who the leadership were at the time, you know. So the, the Brits knew, <laughs> the Brits knew, unfortunately, but uh, I didn't know. Mm. Yeah, because um, I guess I was just going to say that there there was a many times then where there was not a green book, like how people volunteered for the IRA before the green book. There, I'm sure there was, there was it, yeah, sure there was a time when there was no green book. Yeah, um, uh, you know, because it perhaps maybe then that that is a response to that 1976 policy of ulsterization, normalization and criminalization. Um, and then the, the increased amount of infiltration um, yeah. that seems to occur, I guess, well, during that time of 76 or whenever, right? Because how, how would it work? Basically, the British would scoop up uh, just a whole bunch of people, some being the IRA, and then they just torture them until they broke and then provided and information. Provided information or signed statements. Now, a lot of people were scooped up, uh, were tortured into breaking on operations they had no involvement in, absolutely none. And they would just sign a statement, you know, and then the, 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 they would be put in to prison and that would be then down to the, you know, the, the special branch of the Brits solved that case, so to speak. Um, some were involved, but the, 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 the biggest danger wasn't breaking as such the biggest danger was agreeing to become an agent and being released and then working for the British from within the IRA. Because that happened, uh, you know, quite often. 
So uh, a volunteer might agree under torture or whatever inducements or blackmail or, or simply money, a large sum of money. I mean, the Brits were known to come in with a suitcase full of money and give somebody a look at it and say, you know, uh, you know, how would you like that? And, uh, you know, it did turn some people. So um, they would then be released uh, for lack of evidence, but they would be working for the British. So uh, every every Irish volunteer that was uh, arrested was always brought in for a security brief from the IRA to try to investigate what was the line, what was the line of questioning and if they possibly broke or told Brits anything. But then again, you know, by the time uh, uh, you know by the time of the early eighties, I don't know the exact time. I mean, the head of the security department was himself a British agent, Freddie Scappatici, and and several others around him, and there were no question they were British agents. Right. So, we were, we, were, we were pretty well penetrated. You see, here's the thing. There was this big uh, play made. Uh, the IRA was reorganized by certain people in, uh, in Belfast and reorganized it into these active service units and these cells that couldn't be penetrated. But then what happened was the IRA brought in Northern Command and started to uh, tell units that various operations had to be vetted by Northern Command before they took place. So you had the theory of all these units being, you know, separate and they don't know each other, but people in Northern Command knew everybody because the whole thing was centralized that way. So um, it was an extremely weak link. And for example, um, let's say uh, an operation went wrong in an area, say Tyrone or wherever, Fermanagh. Well, Scapatigi could come down on behalf of, of the general headquarters part of the IRA uh, security department and quiz people who was on the operation, who did what, who did that. I mean, this guy from Belfast, who nobody knew, come down and find out everything because he was acting on behalf of the leadership. The fact of the matter is the man was a, was a British agent. So uh, while great play is made of that the IRA when it, you know, had these self-contained cells and all, it was completely uh, neutralized by this other um, Northern Command um, element that was able to come in and security element that was able to come in and basically find out everything uh, they needed to know. So, and the Brits were running that. So um, we were um, we, we we were very heavily um, uh, at a, at a very heavy disadvantage. Though we didn't know it at the time, you know that would only gradually become clear. Right, right, and and so you, you know the touching on the the notion of the active service units, the ASUs. That um that that did come out of I guess it's called Cage Eleven where uh, Jerry Adams and Ivor Bell and Brendan Hughes were kept when they were imprisoned in Long Cash or interned in Long Cash, should say, and um, for the purpose the creation of these active service units these separate seemingly decentralized cells of uh, smaller amounts of IRA personnel um, was was a strategic move done for the purpose of reducing the impact of informers and agents, correct? Well, that was the theory. I can't say who developed it because I wasn't there. Right. But um, that was the theory. But you see, I think for some people in a leadership position, the most important thing for them wasn't the technical and tactical ability of active service units. It was control, that they had control. And if active units of ASUs were autonomous to that level, they would lose control. And I think control meant more than security or effectiveness as an army. I think with some people, that was the priority. 
And that was a real weak link that eventually led to our destruction from, from within. As mm-hmm. Kitson said, you can only really de- defeat a guerrilla army from within. And that's what happened with us. We were defeated from within. Uh, you know, we were told that um, Jim Linus' funeral, uh, I was in prison at the time. I knew Jim. He was killed at Lock Ball uh, with, with, with seven other volunteers. And uh, I remember Jerry Adams saying that Lock Ball would be the tombstone of British rule in Ireland. You know, but British rule is still there and the IRA are gone. The IRA are buried. And so um, it isn't exactly the way we we thought things were going to pan out. For sure. Yeah, so when I say we lost, that's what I mean. And when I say we lost, we lost, we lost the whole concept of Republic. I mean, I mean, you know, you, 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 have a, you have what I call pacification at the minute. I don't call it peace because peace, real genuine peace, deals with the root cause of conflict. The root cause of conflict to an Irish Republican is British claims to jurisdiction in our country. Pacification means the IRA is disbanded, uh, its weapons are decommissioned, and there's no real armed threat to the British state anymore. So, yeah, that's pacification. I know there are people who will argue that what what does it matter what you call it, as long as nobody's getting killed? You know, peace pacification doesn't matter what you call it. It's semantics. But But it's actually not. Because uh, you'll have genuine peace when, you, when you've dealt with the root cause. When you have just specification, that's a very unstable position to be in. Because um, the root cause of the troubles are still there, which is Britain's denial of Ireland's right to national self-determination as a whole. That still exists. You know, The IRA may be gone, but that British claim is still here. So um, I'm not saying that armed struggle is going to start again or anything like that. I mean, I wouldn't know I'm not involved in any organization. And I wouldn't like to see it start again. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the root causes of the troubles in Ireland are still basically intact. And uh, it's hard to, um, you know, if you you look at Irish history, uh, that's not a good place to be long term. Yes, that's a tough pill to swallow, especially... um you know with all the exuberance and and positive uh, media attention that the good friday agreements received in 1998 you look back on, on footage and it's such a glorious time you know um you know even even from like 1994 when the ceasefire uh the provisional ira ceasefire with the british arm, army military was called right like those yeah. four years it didn't seem like a lot happened. I mean, of course, the Oma bombing, which was uh, that pretty much seemed to really destroy uh, the idea of physical force, republicanism uh, for there, many. There, there, there's there's a deep and dark story behind that that'll probably never come out. But who benefited from that bombing? It wasn't Irish Republicans, that's for sure. Right. And it, when you say there's a deep and dark story that may never come out about the Oma bombing, which, you know, happened in 1997, was was considered the the um the, at the hands of the, the real IRA who were, uh, you know, uh, considered called call the dissident Republican physical force movement, which the leader was Mickey McKevitt, who was the quartermaster general of the provisional IRA when he left in 1997. Um, as did other provisional IRA members over the decade, um, because they believed that, I guess, um, as you say, uh, certain parties in in um, 
the Northern Command were seeking to maintain and 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 grow their control um, and to take that path that eventually led to the Good Friday Agreements. And um, but uh, yeah, I mean, to there's so much to unpack about the Oma bombing. But to backtrack a second to Freddie Scappaticci and the internal uh, security unit. Uh, which was a cell into itself as well, right? So when the ASUs were formed as a tactic, as a strategy, um, I mean, that seemed, I'd imagine at the time, some people might've thought that was really cool. It was a really, right? Like, cause that seemed, especially um, as opposed to the uh, uh, previous strategy of the flying columns, um, uh, which was that military strategy of much larger, uh, units and maybe more people knew each other um but uh moving on that sort of uh, idea of the of the active service unit um the that the internal security unit that it wasn't that scapatici i guess is the most infamous i suppose uh agent right and um he just died in april 2023 there were and, quite a few uh, agents, but he'd be the the most notable. He, but you know, outed publicly. Like so, there are. But so I can't imagine that that the 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 security unit being that big. And I've counted, I think, just in recent readings, uh, at least three uh, people who were agents in the internal security unit when it was functioning. There were there were agents as well. Scapatici, that guy Kevin Fulton, right. And then possibly the that guy John Joe McGee, if that's well, I've heard that I, I couldn't say for sure. Like I'm I am i am absolutely sure of Fulton and Scapatitra agents. John Joe McGee, I don't know. I never met John Joe McGee, but I mean that seems to be that seems to be uh widely believed. I, I couldn't say for sure. But John, see, how many people do you think are in it uh the internal security unit at one time then? Well, you see, the IRA units and even active service units they people would float in and out of units, you know. Uh, very often, active service unit. It might be the same men every time they went out. You know, you'd have different men and things like that. Internal security unit was probably headed up by SCAP and one or two other people, and they would have been fairly. Um, they would have been there for for years, but other people would have come and gone, and not, and they weren't the only people. I mean, informers were interrogated in other areas. Like informers were also interrogated by in South Armagh. But and and uh, you know, and Scap would have had no involvement in that, and you know, it it did happen in other areas. But um, you know, to get back to your thing, you know, about the active service units, the formation of small, compact uh, units, professionally trained, well led, and um, uh, totally unknown to each other, would have been a massive benefit to us a massive benefit it would have been a, a, a usually and brilliant move however um bringing in the centralized control of the internal security unit and northern command and all the other stuff in the mix just completely sabotaged that from within it was ridiculous you know what i mean and you know they talk about active service units but when you know if you're around the border long enough you know i mean i mean i was at meetings you know when i was active i got to be very careful what i say here but I should have known four or five people. But, you know, within about two or three years, I knew probably 50 or 60 people. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, um, it, it, it wasn't what it was, it wasn't what it was meant to be. Definitely not. But had, 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 had the units been, uh, uh, you know, in practice, what, 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 what was, you know, pronounced in theory, uh, it, it would have been a different situation. It would have been, you know, uh, I think we'd have been far more effective. Um, mm-hmm. And definitely we would have been far less um, uh, open to penetration by British intelligence. Definitely. But like, um, I, I think the level of penetration by the Brits and, and, and their level of knowledge of the movement and their, able, and their ability to um, manipulate the movement in directions they wanted it to go was, 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 was amazing. You know, very slowly, you know, softly, softly, catchy monkey, but eventually they got there. For sure. And um, you, like yeah. you've touched on in previous interviews, too, I mean, um, and what we're speaking on here is, um, well, you know, the IRA is was an illegal army, uh, right? A, a clandestine uh, secret organization that that already, it not being a legally sanctioned army, um, that already puts it behind the eight ball a little bit, if you will. In terms of public perception, um, well, just being a member is a prison sentence. You don't have to do anything. Just being a member, if, you know, it, it, it is it will get you. Well, you know, five, six, seven, or eight years in prison. You know, just being even a in Ireland, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that um, you know, uh, you know, something I wanted to touch on with uh, you know what you bring up in 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 the book in the Yank, where. Um, you detail the amount of rigorous training that you went through with Marine Recon, you know, specifically with the knowledge of organizational uh, intelligence, right? And so you speak in the book about how, because the IRA is this clandestine illegal organization, it became very difficult and continues, I suppose, on a wider scale for Irish people to even discuss their own history, the the after action reviews yeah. that, that are conducted, um, which that's even done in business, you know. That's right. Well, people um, make the same mistakes again and again and again, because you know, there 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 was very little after action reviews. Now, you know, in a grill army like that, you and you know, you have to watch your security and all. But I thought there could have been. I mean, I had learned hard lessons that people learned before me, and I I wish I'd have been told, you know, and. Uh, there was no organizational map of learning. Uh, we, we could have very, you see, training camps would be around the border or different parts of the south of Ireland or wherever. And men could be trained in completely different, men could be told something in one camp and told the exact opposite in another. Like, for example, I talk about you know, the British Army helmet being bulletproof. I might tell somebody, well, it's not, it's not bulletproof to have velocity rifle fire. And then another place, 20 miles down the road, they'd be told, oh, yeah, that the helmet's bulletproof. And that would affect how people operate, very much so. Uh, it's just a small little example, but you, you can multiply that around hundreds of misconceptions. And uh, so it would have been a fairly easy matter to develop a cadre of uh, people who had some level of professional training. As I said in the book, we had school teachers. I met many Republican school teachers who could de- devise lesson plans, training, and, you know, we had artists who make training aids, uh, and, you know, we could devise a course structure and train people to a very high professional level, right? But it never seemed to get off the ground. It was always, I mean, I was actually, 
I was actually told by two members of the Irish Army Council, I don't want to name names, you, I sure you could, you could teach a monkey to shoot. You could teach a monkey to shoot. Now, you know, yes, you could probably teach a monkey to point a rifle in, in, in a certain direction and pull a trigger, but you can't teach them marksmanship fundamentals. You can't teach them how to move, shoot, and communicate as part of a cohesive team. They had, a, they had what I would call the most stinking attitude towards training that I've ever come across. I couldn't believe it. You know, coming as a, as a Marine instructor. Now, many people in the IRA were fabulous. Uh, some of the finest men and women I ever met were IRA volunteers. Uh, many were killed fighting for the freedom of the country. Some died in hunger strike, the most agonizing deaths for a principal. I mean, we had terrific people. But, you know, we also had, um, we also had uh, people who were completely fossilized. In, in, in their thinking and could not break out of their narrow mental orbits, just couldn't do it. And some, I believe, wouldn't do it because I think they believe that if we got to a higher level of military capacity, their 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 lives would be in danger and they liked the positions they were in. I'm sorry if I'm talking in circles uh, here. I, I know I'm being vague, but I really can't get too more specific than that. But we could, have, we could have trained up to a much higher level than we did. It was quite possible to do it. It would have been as easy to do it right as, as to do it wrong. But time and time and time again, certain people chose to do it wrong. And, and, and that just drove me bananas because the men who were being trained wanted the best possible training they could get almost across the board. Mm -hmm. It was always at a higher up level that I found the blockages and the problems and the gaslighting as if to say, you know, you know, uh, sure, even the Brits say we're the best trained girls in the world. You know, what are you on about? And then mm -hmm. you know, I'd be thinking, well, maybe, am I wrong here? Am I, is there something I'm not saying? You know, it would be so, um, it would be so all pervasive, this, 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 this gaslighting, that it, it would make you nearly question your own judgment. You question what you're saying for yourself, you know. Uh, but, um, um, uh, you know, we, we, we certainly, we certainly could have done better with the training. No, no question about that. Now we had a good engineering department, mm -hmm. uh, the department, uh, that made a, a wide range of improvised explosive devices and things like that. And, uh, you know, uh, the lack of effectiveness actually in small arms and that flagged up a bit by the fact that even according to the Brits, half the British soldiers killed between 1979 and the ceasefire in, in 94 were killed in 12 bomb attacks, you know. So, so gun attacks were, were, were quite ineffective because um, basically men weren't, weren't trained. Not only not trained in their own weapons properly, but had very poor uh, understanding of, of, of the enemy equipment. You know, they thought helmets were bulletproof. They thought the jackets were bulletproof where they weren't bulletproof, you know, the, the, the flak jackets and that. And so just an awful lot of misconceptions like that. And, that and, and people weren't stupid. I'm not saying that. They weren't stupid. I mean, if you put me in a in a seven thirty seven, asked me to fly it, I I wouldn't know where to begin. Does that mean I'm stupid? It just means I'm not trained to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were some very intelligent guys, but and and, and women too. But uh, there was a lack uh, 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 of leadership in critical places that uh, prevented us from um, uh, getting to negotiations eventually in a much stronger negotiating position than we did. Mm. And, you know, when we come to the Good Friday Agreement, I, I don't want to jump jump ahead too far, but, you know, there's this narrative, you know, people think that the, the provosts, you know, you know, negotiate this agreement with the Brits. And the Good Friday Agreement was, was negotiated between the Dublin government and the London governments. 
the pro the provisional the IRA were on the fringes and were consulted about you know decommissioning and policing and certain aspects you know what they would accept and they wouldn't accept but they were not in any way central to negotiations they were not a victorious army negotiating with the enemy that was never the case although that's the narrative they try to push now you know we we we, we bombed the Brits negotiating table that's that's nonsense absolute nonsense mm. and um well, you you bring up Northern Command um, as another area of centralization, command and control, I suppose, when it came to the active service units. And, um, um, well, you were sent to Boston by Northern Command, correct? Uh, when you went to Boston to have... By Martin McGinnis. I don't know if he was acting in his capacity in Northern Command. I, I, I... In fact, I don't think Northern Command had been set up then. Northern Command came in around 86. Uh, well, no, no, no. I, I, no, I'm sorry. Northern Command w w was there, but uh, the, 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 the order to run operations through Northern Command, I think, came in around August of 86, I believe. Okay. Uh, so I, I don't think, I think Martin was probably, I, I don't know what capacity he was acting in. He was an IRA leader. He, he told me to go to the States. Mm-hmm. By guns, and I thought it was ridiculous because, uh, and he told me he specifically told me, you have an American accent, you can go to a gun store and buy guns. Mm -hmm. And I says, well, there's only three or four guns we need to get, really. Uh, send that list over there, and there's lots of guys over there American accents who would happily go in and buy guns for us. You know, there was, and uh, you no, know, he he wanted me to go, and uh, it, you know, I was just getting, I had just tied in with Jim Lina, and I was going to move over to to Jim Lina's unit the following week, and had I got there. You know, me and Jim were very much in the way, one wavelength when we met again in prison. And had I got there, I, I, I think I could have contributed a lot, you know, not not as a, as an operator, but contributed a lot as, you know, uh, maybe advising on, you know, training, weapons, um, accessories, like night vision, things like that, 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 we, that we could have got would have improved us. And that would have been, I think, the best place for me to be as a, as a volunteer. But... Um, you know, ridiculous to send me with, with all the training I had in, in Marine Recon as an instructor to send me to the States to buy guns because I had an American accent. So mm. well, the only asset that, you know, Mark McGinnis felt that I had to contribute to the movement was my accent, basically. Mm. I mean, and I thought, you know, so joining Marines Recon had been a complete waste of time as far as I was concerned, you know, because I, I really wasn't able to contribute anything substantial to the IRA at all. Uh, just Maxon, which was ridiculous. What unit was Jim Lino with? Well, he was from North Monaghan. Now, Jim operated with different units, but he, when he was killed, he was released to Rome. But again, you know, Jim could have been in, Jim would have operated with the Fermanagh Brigade. He would have operated East Tyrone. He would have operated all over the place. Uh, very active volunteer. Uh, uh, somebody that I felt had, you know, the special forces capabilities or, or, or um, you know, character that I would have met with special forces people that I met when I was in recon, you know, I met green berets, met seals, met, you know, army rangers. Jim had that, it was at that caliber. I felt that, that caliber, he was uh, highly intelligent, uh, absolutely courageous. And, um, uh, he could have become, as I say in the book, uh, of inspirational significance had he, had he, had he lived. And I, and I can understand why, why the Brits were so determined to take him out of it. And the men around him, you know, he, he was filled with other men too, who were very good men. But mm -hmm. I, I knew Jim, I didn't know the other men, but 
everything I've heard about them is they were they were they were you know first class operators, like really good men, good patriots, good Irishmen. Mm. Yeah, because Jim Lina and and others uh, in at the active service unit in East Tyrone, I think, as you said, were um, ambushed by the SAS in 1988 on an operation in 87. Yeah, 1987. Excuse me. Yeah, well, they were informed on. I mean, the SAS were waiting on them. I mean, you know, the SAS aren't waiting around every barracks in the north. They were waiting on that specific one to take them out of it. So obviously, they knew that the men were coming. You know. And the news story at the time was that the SAS was waiting for an ambush, but the IRA came out firing first, uh, which it turns out didn't happen at all. They were just disseminated as soon as the SAS saw their their car. Um, for some people, that distinction doesn't matter, but this touches yeah. on almost everything about the Troubles, really, is the dirty wars. And as the British military acting still in the colonial uh playbook acting from the colonial empire playbook uh still uh legalizing illegality utilizing their 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 own morals of violence and anyone that dares to rise up against them are scumbag terrorists and you know they're they're fighting for after all the white man's burden uh in order to uh you know yeah well, I mean Good. You know, that is collaboration. Now, I mean, in fairness, I mean, we shot to kill as well. The IRA, we shot to kill as well. But you see, the difference with the Brits is they claimed to be operating under the rule of law, right? We were fighting their law to replace it with an Irish constitutional law. And uh, they were claiming, so, you know, uh, we didn't lie about what we were doing. You know, they were lying all the time. Now, maybe it's a moot point. People are dead, and you know. You know but the thing about it is, uh, you know, we went in, we, we our, our volunteers would shoot to kill. There's no question about that. The enemy, like, I mean, not, you know, hopefully the enemy and nobody else. But the Brits, you know, uh, they would shoot to kill and then deny it. Deny they, they were shooting to kill. They were only responding or they were reacting or they were this or they were that, you know, which, you know, gets a bit tedious at, at, at times. You know, why don't they just, you know, if they're so proud of themselves, why don't they just stand up and tell the truth about what they're doing there? You know what I mean? Yeah. They're, but they're always hiding behind a, a tissue of lies, you know? But um, as far as men being killed on the operation, uh, they were very brave men. They were taken on the enemy, and they were killed in action. And I don't think those men, none of them wanted to be killed, but uh, I don't think any of them would 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 uh, would want would want to say they were murdered either. You know, they were killed in action as soldiers fighting for the freedom of their country. And I, you know, um, I can't speak for them. I obviously can't speak for them, but. Uh, I knew Jim, and I, I have a good idea the type of person Jim would have, would have let near him. Jim wouldn't have let anybody near him or have operated with anybody unless they were pretty damn good men themselves. And everything I've heard about him is that they, they, were, they were good operators, good men, good soldiers. They were mm. patriots. They were patriots, and they died fighting for the full freedom and independence of their country. And um, they were a tremendous loss. But um, it helped pave the way for other more... Uh, ambitious pipsqueaks to uh, move up the political ladder and uh, build little careers for themselves. But that's that's another story. <laughs> you know, speaking of of uh, just ASUs and, and operations, again, that, that that you were involved in, well, one of the more uh, spectacular, I suppose, in a sense, was when Martin McGinnis sent you out to, to, to Boston to help with uh, an arms shipment 
to Ireland. And, um, you know, you mentioned in the book and also in our chat here about how, you know, it seemed like McGinnis just wanted to utilize your American accent and seem to disregard all your, your training. That's in a nutshell. I mean, you know, he could argue other things. He's, he's not, he's not alive to, you know, to give his, his view, but all I can tell you is what he told me. He says, you have an American accent. We're sending you there. And as far as my training was concerned, he never asked me a question about it. He never ever seemed to show the slightest interest. And in fact, when I mentioned uh, uh, training that could improve or accessories that could help us operationally, I always got the impression I was bothering him. He didn't want to, he did not want to know. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I could have crossed you there. No. Would you ever, would one descriptor of, of McGinnis that might come to mind for you at times be possibly he could have been a hothead at times? Um, I don't know if he was a hothead or not. I, I mean, I, I wasn't, I mean, we weren't drinking buddies. I, I met him, you know, you know what I mean? I didn't know him well enough like that. I mean, I heard, I heard, you know, evidence he, 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 he could fly off the handle already, right, but he could be quite charming. I mean, I did like him and I was very impressed to meet him because the Brits kept saying he was our finest military thinker. So I believe this, you know, and our top man. And he could be, he, you know, he could be quite charming. And uh, if if you if you played along and uh, you, I think you were in awe of him as I was, he could be quite, um, you know, you know, quite good company. Uh, if you uh, challenged what uh, challenged him in any way, though, he, he, he could get quite straightened and you could get the icy blue. Icy blue ice stare from him pretty quick, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he when you did mention a little bit about the training that you wanted to implement or or adding certain accessories to to the weaponry, yeah. it does seem that he was a bit bristled and annoyed, yeah. I got that impression. Yeah. I think he, I got the impression at the time. I thought that it it he thought I was implicitly criticizing the IRA leadership because this wasn't being done. I wasn't. I was trying to improve things so that we could uh, be better able to fight the British for the freedom of Ireland. I mean, I wasn't. I mean, I admired the IRA. I joined them because I admired them. I looked up to them. I mean, I, I, I uh, you know, I was I was proud to be an IRA volunteer. I wasn't in there to criticize anybody. I was just trying to help. But that's that. That's how I I, I perceived his uh, reaction. Uh, I can't think of a single thing that I mentioned or ever said that he took on board as would be worthwhile. Whereas with other IRA leaders, I did, did very much so. Mm. But definitely not with him. Definitely did, not with him. Did McGinnis say, was he one of the ones that said that, sure, we're, even the Brits say we're one of the finest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He said he would say that even the Brits say we're the, we're the best trained army in the world. And sort of like, you know, more or less, he didn't say this, but the implication was, what's your, what's your problem? You know, even the Brits can see how good we are. What's your problem like? That's what I mean by the gaslighting. Mm -hmm. You know, then you start to wonder, like, am I, am I, am I, you know, am I out of line here or what? You know, but it's just the way it's the way it is. You know, and uh, it's it's hard to um, it's hard to go against that or or or, or that. You know, he, he had such a he's had such high prestige in the movement, and here is me, this guy coming from the states, just joined and. People maybe were wondering what my motives were and what I was there for, and you know, you have all this stuff. Like I did not want to come across as a know-all. Like I, I was only, I was only pushing this a bit because I was tasked with going to buy weapons. I mean, normally I didn't come across like this because I didn't want to come across as you know a know-all or come across as somebody overly opinionated. I actually, you know, 
I actually kept my opinions to myself for the most part, but you know, I was given a job to get weapons and I tried to argue with them the best weapons we should get. And um, I don't think he was, uh, he was too interested in, in hearing anything I had to say. Mm. Well, anything let's like let's go into that. Polite, um, polite, but you know, he just, he just, just uh, he had a, a subtle way of, you know, marginalizing you or something. Well, sure. I guess that's one of the criticisms of McGinnis and then maybe Adams as well when it came to Rory O'Brady, who was the leader of Sinn Féin and, and, and Dahi O'Connell, I suppose, how uh, they kind of marginalized them within the Republican movement. So one criticism would be um, uh, when when the kind of rising of the young Turks, if you will, uh, you know, from the late 70s to 1982 and then beyond, right, 86, when Rory O'Brady was then uh, sort of, you could almost say eliminated, uh, you know, but he well, obviously was the, not killed. Well, well, well what I say about the, about, about the so-called young Turks, and I don't, you know, I mean, uh, is that they weren't very good at defeating the British government, but they were superb at gaining control of the organization and keeping control of the organization. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, and uh, there were there were people in that. You see, I'm a firm believer in that a real leader produces more leaders. That's what real leadership's about. You make more leaders. There were too many people in the provost who were only interested in followers. They put followers in the position. And uh, that's, that, that, that. you know, we should have been a ruthless, ruthlessly, you know, a ruthless meritocracy. In the sense, what I mean by ruthless is, if a man was the best man for the job, even if you didn't like him or you didn't agree with him, or he wasn't on your side on arguments, whatever, he should be in that position because he is the best man for the job. That would not happen. So by very often, um, Disciples were, 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 were put in place, I found, I believe, in key positions. And many of them, too often, were very incapable individuals. Some of them were capable, but too many times they were incapable. But if they were uh, on message, on board, in other words, a spoke in a wheel. If the wheel turned this way, they turned that way. If the wheel turned the other way tomorrow, they went, they turned that way too. No bottom line, you know? No. Um, no prince. In other words, their loyalty was to the messenger, not the message. My loyalty was to the message. And the message was the, the establishment of a of, of, of full freedom of Ireland to, to establish a national democracy within an all Ireland republic, and to ensure that Irish constitutional authority resided with the Irish people and not with any foreign government. That was to me the message. Uh, if the messenger wasn't wasn't on board the message. Then I had no more interest in the messenger, whereas other people, their loyalty was to the messenger because, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, maybe reasons of, of um, you know, they like being promoted. They like being, you know, they liked uh, the patronage of having somebody, you know, guiding them through their career as a whatever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can't I can't answer for somebody whose loyalty is to an individual guru or messiah and not the actual message that's mm -hmm. all i'm interested in is what is the bottom line and um well on that note 
you 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 on McGinnis's order, you you went to Boston to fulfill an operation and a mission. Um and it brought you uh well rubbing rubbing shoulders with I suppose the uh the Irish mob in, in Boston yeah. at the time. Um and uh you know I I I guess yeah the leader I suppose there was was Whitey Bulger. Right. And yeah. uh you know Steve I'm, I'm, Steve Fleming. Steve Fleming. I met them on numerous occasions. But I have to say you see to put this into perspective. And you know, I was often asked, you know, well, how could you work with these guys and all this? You see, I didn't have the advantage of all the books and the movies that are out now about these guys. I don't know anything about organized crime. I, I, I was, I was, I was a Republican. I was a patriot, right? I went. I, I didn't know anything about Boston. I never heard of Whitey Bulger in my life. I didn't know who the hell he was. Well, I knew he was prepared to break the law because we needed weapons, and he was going to help us, you know, get weapons to an extent or allow or allow people working around him to work with us, right? To provide that resource. But, you know, the stories you hear about him now, the people, you know, the murders, pulling teeth out of people, burying them in basements, burying them under bridges and all that. I mean, he didn't tell us that, you know, uh, he came across as, um, you know, he came across as a, as a pretty sophisticated guy. You know, he, uh, he was intelligent. He was well-read, uh, he didn't come across as the mercurial psychopath he's portrayed, although I saw glimpses and, and flashes of that at times. But um, I have to say there was a coldness about him. Uh, he had a right-hand man there called Patney, who I, I warmed to a lot. Patney was born in Ireland. He uh, came from an Irish-speaking household. His parents spoke fluent Irish in the house when I was there. Uh, Pat, th yes, that's his book, Patney. Yeah, yeah. Pat was a good guy. Pat was a criminal. It makes no doubt about, no bones about it. He called himself a criminal, but he also had a he had he had, he had a great uh, he had a great support for the for the for the, for the struggle for his freedom, and he gave us a lot of help. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have accomplished very much. So, you know, Whitey wasn't hands on in, in that sense, you know, but uh, I never could quite discern Whitey's real motives for helping us or allowing Pat Nee to help us, but um, I. I I never trusted Whitey, and I'm not just saying that in hindsight. I generally never trusted him. I was never comfortable in his company. Um, whereas, you know, I liked Pat. I liked being with Pat. Nate. You know, I, you know, we got on well. He was a former U.S. Marine as well. Now, I didn't tell these guys too much about my background, but after you know, we had some successes in certain things. I can't go into. And when we did, and you know, I felt I could give them a level of trust. I told them I was in the Marines too, and you know, and after that, you know, me and Pat really bonded and. Uh, uh, a good, I, I liked Pat a lot, you know, Pat, Pat, Pat watched my back, you know, but, um, I have to say about Whitey Bulger, um, I mean, knowing what I know now, it, it's 10 times worse, you know, but even not knowing that stuff back then and not knowing the details of what he was doing, uh, I found him uh, a very cold individual and somebody that, um, I could, I would not be friends with. We, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be drinking buddies. Well, I don't drink anyway, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't be drinking buddies. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas I could go out, I could go out to barbecue with Pat and enjoy myself. Mm. You know, you understand different, just different scenario. Yeah. Right. Well, sure, of course. I mean, um, some people are just pure psychopaths. Yeah. Yes, well, I know. I, I would. I, I didn't know if he was a pure psychopath at the time. It seemed of to be. Of course. There was this coldness there, and 
as I say in the book too, there were, you know, I, it came to a point where I thought that if my operation was conflicting with his operation, I could disappear. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that did cross my mind at the time. So I didn't trust him. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like being alone with him or anything like that. Yeah, that's a pretty harrowing moment in the book that you describe where you're cleaning, you're, you're, you're filing off some serial numbers from some AK-47s right. or right. something. And, yeah. and then in comes Steve Rifleman Flemmy, who also was fond of torture. And yeah, well, I didn't know that at the time. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> the mighty I, Steve, Steve Flemmy came across as kind of okay to me. I mean, I, I, I wasn't afraid of Steve Flemmy. Not that I was afraid of Whitey. I was wary of Whitey. But Steve Flemmy came across as just, just quiet. And he, I didn't know his background. I didn't know anything about the guy, really. Uh, but it was Whitey I was focused on. And they came, they did come down to the basement one time, and it was in the corner. And I believe that's the same basement where they buried the bodies and where they later killed John McIntyre. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, of course, I didn't know any of this at the time. And I just remember, you know, uh, you know, the hair standing in the back of my neck and wondering why they were down here. And I was in this corner. None of the guns were loaded. And it just crossed my mind, are these guys going to, you know, end this now here? You know, and, I, you know, I could have ended up, you know, but in a lobster pot in Boston Bay, as I said. No. So I think I think it just flags up. Like, I'm not I'm not a paranoid person, but I think it flags up uh, the weariness I felt and the lack of confidence and the lack of trust I felt when I had those thoughts when they were down there. Now, they did leave, of course, or I wouldn't be talking to you now. But, um, you know. I didn't want to be alone with them again. I didn't want to be unarmed around them again. And I was hoping when I got back to America with the Ireland with the guns, that I wouldn't have to go back to Boston. Mm-hmm. I was hoping I was hoping I could get out of get out of another trip. I just um, it's hard to put your finger on it, but look, at, I, I wasn't a criminal. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't comfortable working with criminals. I had you to get the guns, but it, 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 it the, their worldview and my worldview were were, were so uh, widely apart that. You know, it, it, it was it was very uncomfortable sometimes to be in their presence. Like I said, Patney was 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 okay. A few other boys from Charleston and all they were they were okay. They were sound, but uh, there was some uh, there were there were there were a few sick puppies there, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd have been glad I would have been glad to be away from them. Kevin Cullen, uh, the Boston Globe writer, uh, wrote a, a book, a biography of Whitey Bulger, and reading that book is interesting because. He the way that he presents Bulger in relationship to the IRA is that Bulger he 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 caught the patriotic fever a bit and it was the most noble thing that Whitey Bulger ever did to support the IRA because according to Cullen's research or his book uh, Whitey Bulger made a deal with John Connolly the FBI agent uh, who those two had their own special relationship where you know Whitey Bulger was providing him information and John Connolly was doing the same providing Bulger information and they were helping each other out in a in a symbiotic sort of yeah. way twisted way um but that's what got Bulger ultimately labeled as a rat for the the relationship he had with John Connolly but according to Cullen Whitey Bulger made this deal with John Connolly that uh before they went further in their relationship of whatever you know ratting um, he made Connolly promise that he would not touch any any of the IRA stuff. Well, I, I, I couldn't. I, I, I don't know. But I do know um, that when we were loading the weapons on the Valhalla in Gloucester with a trip across, 
Whitey told me, and he told me in a, in, in a sense, I believe, uh, I, I remember saying, well, I hope we don't get arrested now. We're about to leave. And he said that there was no FBI investigation on IRA activities in the New England area going on at the time. And he seemed quite confident about that. Now, he didn't tell me how he knew that, but he said it in a way that made me believe he did know that. But I didn't, you know, I, you know, he, he seen, you know, I mean, but he didn't tell me he was working with the FBI. But, uh, you know, some people have said to me, oh, he, he probably told on you, and he didn't. The FBI, the American authorities would never have allowed us to leave American territorial waters with those weapons. Never. I mean, we, we, we nearly sank coming across the Atlantic in a hurricane as it was. And they weren't going to give the uh, credit for the arrest, uh, and you know, to another jurisdiction. That wasn't going to happen. We, we'd have been arrested on the spot if they knew we were there. So, um, no, so he didn't, it wasn't like he was an informer in every little thing, you know, running to them, whatever, t- telling every little story. But uh, who knows, maybe down the line, if he wanted to get rid of me, he could have told of the next shipment or something, you know. But uh, an Irish informer, uh, anyway, got us on, on, on the other end anyway. But, and, uh, but it was an informer that took down that, that shipment of, of, of guns. So what was it? It was 1984, and it was, you were sailing out on a trawler named the Mar- Marietta Ann? Well, well we, we sailed on a, We left Gloucester and... For, on a trawler called the Valhalla, and we crossed the Atlantic. We hit a we hit a hurricane coming across. Horrendous, horrendous, crazy it was, but we survived it. Barely survived it. And then we met up with the Marina Anne, about a fishing Irish fishing trawler about two hundred miles off the coast of Ireland, and we boarded the boat. And uh, we we tra- we I trans we transferred the weapons and I boarded the Marina Anne, and then we went our way. But see, we were arrested coming into what they call Kenmare Bay, uh, in, near Kerry. Well, in Kerry. And uh, here's the thing. People were saying after, oh, you know, this information came from America and all. Nobody in America, including myself, knew who was collecting the weapons in the Irish end or knew we were going to Kenmare Bay. I mean, I could have been going to Donegal, Galway, Sligo. I could have been going anywhere. I didn't know where we were landing the weapons. Not a notion. Nobody in the American end knew. But the Irish Navy knew. You know, and I know I didn't tell them. So the information came from the Irish side. Definitely. And you, you basically uh, named who you believe was the informer. Sean Callahan was the informer. There's no mm-hmm. question. He admitted it. And he was quite proud of being a, a traitor. But um, I believe he may not have been the only one. I have strong reason to believe he wasn't the only one. But he was the one that, that, that you know, became public about it. Why is that? Why do you think that there was another well, informer? Well, because I got a message uh it's probably too long to tell me I describe it in the book, but I got a message, uh, a mysterious message to come now back to Ireland, bring everything you got, you be on the boat. So first of all, we only had, you know, we had some small arms and all, nothing that would make any strategic difference to the IRA. There was no immediate need for the IRA for these weapons, none. And it wasn't like we had surface terror missiles or javelins or something, you know, really important. It was, it was small arms. So it's come now, Bring everything, and you be on the boat. And I was never supposed to be on the boat. That was not my, my role. Was to, to set up the network and 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 and, uh, and all that. You don't you don't take the guy who set up the whole network and knows the whole network and put him and put him on a boat like that. Plus, I wasn't a sailor. I'd been in the Marines, but I wasn't a sailor. I didn't know anything about operating a fishing boat. I had no. I was dead weight. I was like a sandbag. There was no reason for me to be on that boat. But I was told in a message to be. So yeah. Uh, it caused everything to go down the tubes. It caused the whole operation because we had much bigger operation planned down the way for a much bigger boat. 
much more sophisticated equipment and military equipment that could have actually shifted the strategic balance in Ireland, could have changed the strategic balance in the favor of Republican forces. We, we, that would, and, and then, so for this little pipsqueak of an operation, everything was, was put down the tubes for this ridiculous order to come now, be on the boat, and bring everything you got. It was ridiculous, but I don't know who gave me that order, you see. Uh, the way it was related to me, I don't know where it came from. I know it came from a member of the Army leadership. I have my suspicions, but I can't prove it. Mm. But, uh, are they so still that, alive uh well um you don't have to answer that i don't, I don't want to i don't want to yeah <laughs> As a, yeah but what, what, I'm saying, what i'm saying is um the, the the whole thing stunk like a lot of things about the ira like i said you know we had men died in hunger strike we had men died in action women too I, some of the finest people I ever met were in the IRA. It's the finest people I ever met. There's no question about it. The vast majority of people were fantastic, overwhelming majority. But just a handful, a small number of informers uh, really done a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. They punched above their weight because they were in positions, in crucial positions, some of them, where they were able to do a lot of damage. And uh, unfortunately, you know, men paid with their lives and uh, and with their freedom for that. Mm-hmm. And women. Of course, yeah, and and I mean this brings up a, a, a debate that goes on today. Uh, there's been books and argument uh, to argue both sides. You know, one book, uh, "The Agents of Influence," uh, is is pretty much states that the IRA lost the intelligence war that Britain started through their infiltration practices, which I guess began in '76 or '79. Um, and, um, you know, they were able to, and the whole, the whole point was to, um, also according to that BBC spotlight documentary that you were featured in, um, it seemed like a, an overriding arc of that documentary, um, was about this, uh, infiltration mission from the British military intelligence, um, to get, uh, the IRA into a political mode. Uh, by, um, you know, essentially propping up Sinn Féin as the way to bring about Irish republicanism. And, um, you know, I I have to say, just personally looking at the stuff and from my perspective, you know, it, it, it is so, there's so much there still from, from what I'm learning, but, um, that also does seem like a noble cause, yeah, like to create a, a you know, the ballot box, if you will, the ballot or the bullet to create a strong Sinn Féin that can eventually become the leadership of, you know, all of Ireland as as it, as it I guess, hoped to become. I always very, very strongly supported political developments because we had to get the Irish people on board with us, you know, and, and, and to politicize the struggle. I, I totally agree with that. The trouble is, it's where they've got... See, they don't support the Republic. They talk about United Ireland, but it won't be united because under the Good Friday Agreement, you can remain British or you can be Irish. Uh, the, the, the British-Irish cleavage in uh, national loyalties is kept intact, even in United Ireland. The sectarian dynamic is enshrined, even in United Ireland. I mean, the purpose of our struggle was to break the connection with England and forge uh, national unity across the sectarian divide, right? That is not in the Good Friday Agreement. What's in the Good Friday Agreement is this constant baked-in sectarian dynamic 
by which the British manipulated Ireland for hundreds of years and will continue to do so. That's why Martin McGuinness and Sinn Féin are shaking hands with British royalty when they come over. They're saying, you have a role here. You have a future role to play with, with unionists who are the British presence. Now, our, our argument was always that unionists are not the British presence. The British presence is the presence of Britain's claim to jurisdiction in Ireland and the civil and, 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 and military apparatus that gives that effect. The British and English were in Ireland hundreds of years before the plantations. They're not here for the unionists. There was no union and there were no unionists for hundreds of years while England was fighting a genocidal war in Ireland to claim jurisdiction here. But, you know, they, they, they did the plantations in the, in the early 1600s uh, as an act of um, uh, of ethnic cleansing to uh, you know break Ulster, which was the, which was the fount and the, and the cornerstone of Irish resistance in Ireland was Ulster, the strongest. You O'Neill, Shane O'Neill, all these boys, they were the strongest rock against British rule, and that's why Ulster was colonized. And so gradually, you know, uh, the whole Republican uh, ethos, which started with Protestants, right? Protestants of the Enlightenment, not Protestant plantation. What they were saying is, we can compromise. We don't have to be, we can compromise. We can bring Planter and Gale, as we call it, together in, 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 with a joint national identity, equal as citizens in a republic. But we have to break the connection with England. We were fighting for a one-nation republic. And what Sinn Féin are supporting today is a two-nations united Ireland. And they're claiming that's victory. It's as far from, from victory for republicanism as you can get. Because it bakes in the division by which Britain has manipulated this country for hundreds of years, and we have to end that. You see, you see what the Good Friday Agreement is saying is: let's embrace division. Let's embrace this division for peace. And what Republicans say: let's end this division for peace. What did Abraham Lincoln say? A house divided against itself cannot stand. And under the Good Friday Agreement, our house will remain permanently divided against itself. Right now. No, you know, you know, you know, unionists are pro-British for reasons that can't be just glibly dismissed. But they're not the British presence, and they're not a separate nation in Ireland. When King Charles came to visit Ireland recently, uh, he said he was visiting the four nations of the UK. You know, England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. Right? He didn't say the five nations of the UK: England, Scotland, Wales, and the two nations in Ireland. See, Ireland was always one nation under British rule. When Ireland was united under British rule. We were treated as one nation. But now, when we're looking for uh, you know, a, a sovereign Ireland, suddenly we're two nations, because that, that division has to be kept. That's how the Brits conquered the world. That's how they divide and conquer, divide and conquer all the time. We have to end that division. And it can only begin, and it will take generations, but it can only begin when we end the connection with England, which the Good Friday Agreement does not do. And that's the problem. That's what confuses people. People think, you know, oh, we're going to get United Ireland out of here, as if the entire struggle for Irish freedom was to end partition. If that's the case, what was the 1916 rising about? There was no partition in 1916. What was the United Irishmen about? There was no partition in 1791. You know, what, what do they mean by unity? They meant national unity across the sectarian divide, which does not exist in the Good Friday Agreement. It's a British pacification strategy, and Sinn Féin are completely on board on it. Completely on board. And uh, uh, well, John, to 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 maybe challenge that viewpoint a bit, just to spice it up a little bit, as well. uh, To what what about the idea that when the troubles began in 1969, 
um, the civil rights for for the Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland were 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 highly abused. Like they they you know truly treated like second class citizens in their own country. Whereas opposed to today, um, you know, the, some would argue that while there there's Northern Ireland is way better on civil rights for Irish Catholics. They have access to more access to jobs and more access to housing, and there's less violence now. Uh, how do you how do you uh, debate that? Well, well, well. First of all, if you don't find if you don't fight for your national rights, there's no violence, you know. But you see, the civil rights thing you talked about was by unionists. It was orange supremacy that was defeating civil rights. It wasn't the Brits themselves. The Brits, the Brits had no particular interest in the orange state. There, no particular interest even in the union's community beyond their utility as a bulwark against the formation of a national civic identity in this country. Um, the, the civil rights improved because the orange state was broken and uh, it was basically taken apart, in, par in part by the Brits as well, because what the Brits wanted and what, they've always, what they said is they wanted to get Stormont back up and running with nationalist buy-in. Now, unionists didn't like that because a large element of unionism is extremely anti-Catholic, which uh, most most Englishmen, in fairness, don't feel that intense anti-Catholicism that, you know, Orangemen feel. So you had the orange state. Uh, but what you have now is, we, we, but we, see, we weren't fighting just the orange state as Republicans. We, we were fighting British jurisdiction. English, England's claim to sovereignty in Ireland. That's still very much intact. And <clears throat> under the Good Friday Agreement, too, uh, uh, any talk of United Ireland, first of all, it's already baked in that this continuing disunity will remain, the British-Irish cleavage and the steering dynamic will remain in United Ireland on the Good Friday Agreement. That's already baked in. That's already agreed. Uh, and another factor is uh, they talk about a, a, a unity poll, but no, no Irish politician or nobody in Ireland can call an Irish unity, unity poll. That can only be called by a British civil servant, the Northern Secretary. An Englishman who doesn't have a single vote in Ireland. He's the only man with the power to do that. So you can say, yes, uh, you know, people voted for the Good Friday Agreement in the North and they voted to change Articles 2 and 3 in the South. And people will argue, well, that's, you know, that's a democratic decision. Well, it was an electoral decision, yes. But, 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 the, the, but, but, but the political decision still lies with the hands of the British government. You see, not, not in the hands of the Irish people. Hmm. Now, and, and it's these subtleties that are often missed and, and, and dismissed, but they're key for the Brits. The Brits know how important that, that this is, you know, to keep, to, 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 in order to maintain some sort of control in this country. The British are, will be quite happy with United Ireland within the British Commonwealth and in NATO. But what, what they don't want and never wanted and never would tolerate is an independent sovereign republic immune to their influence. And they played a long game, and they've been working now, as they've been working for many years, to shape the strategic environment in this country, to shape the constitutional environment of a future United Ireland. Because there is no question the demographics are going one way, and unionism, unionists will eventually be unsustainable in the North. Unionists are only a majority in two of the six counties now, only a majority in two of the 32 counties, right? The Brits are playing the long game to maintain their influence here. And the best way for them to maintain their influence here is through baking in that sectarian division. And, you know, you know, like I said, too, when, when Sinn Féin were running around shaking heads with royalty, saying, well, because you represent the British presence in Ireland, which is unionist, 
that that that's totally counter to every Republican, uh, you know, uh, tactic or strategy that we ever had. You know, we were we were to break the connection with England, not to enhance it and say you have a legitimacy here, and not only that, you have a role to play in the future. That is not a Republican position. That is not a Republican position. Now, it, it, it's a position. It's not a Republican position. And I'm a Republican. A very important point. This, this is where some of the sullies come in. Some people, some Republicans are nationalists, mostly nationalists, I'd call them, were fighting the orange state. They were fighting uh, the lack of civil rights, the, the sectarian supremacy. And when that was ameliorated, they felt the fight, the fight was sort of over or they'd fought enough. Others, Republicans like myself, we were fighting British jurisdiction in Ireland. You know, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it, you know, people say, well, the orange state and all that. If the Brits paved the streets with gold, I just still fought them because they have no right in this country. And you see, so what happened then was when when, when the Brits were bringing in, uh, uh, you know, political dispensations that were starting to put, you know, Catholics in uh, into the system, unionists would squeal. Nationalists hear unionists squealing, and they think we're winning, we're winning because unionists are going crazy here. But the Brits are sitting back laughing. The Brits are laughing at this because the Brits don't care about the orange state. They care about maintaining influence in this massive, strategically important landmass on their western flank. And whatever way they do it, whoever their allies are to do it, they will work with them. That's that they've always done that. Hmm. And um thank you for that. And and do you you mentioned that the British state is playing the long game yeah. and that there's only two counties that are uh, a population of where Protestants or unionists are. Yeah. So um, they have anticipated, in other words, the uh, the turnover in the amount of Irish Catholics in the north. And that's that's what the Good Friday agreements really were to to kind of graft that the uh, the shell of Irish republicanism into whatever this shared island motif is. Is that, yeah, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's been described very well by others that the, the purpose of, the, of this was to get Republican Republicans in and keep republicanism out. And that's what they've done. Mm. Uh, so, um, you know, they talk about a sharing, sharing. They, they talk about a new Ireland, a shared Ireland and a shared island. But what you will never hear speaking of is the Irish Republic. The Irish Republic we fought for. There was no no talk of that. That was because that wasn't never on the table in negotiations. Never. Mm. Never. It's never a matter even for discussion. Never mind negotiation. So um, that's the position you know uh, we're we're in at the moment now. You know, but I think that anyone who believes that when unionist population dwindles to an unsustainable level in the six counties, that, that the British government will just leave Ireland and close the door behind them, uh, are seriously mistaken. Mm. Because uh, Ireland is a very strategically placed island. Um, the, the British nuclear uh, uh, deterrent has to go between the, 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 the strait between the north of Ireland and Scotland when it's going out to sea. They don't want an independent country on their that on their that flank maybe controlling that strait mm. if they can help it. 
97% uh, of all global communication cables, undersea cables, pass through Irish territorial waters or close to them. And also Ireland is, 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 is placed uh, 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 on very strategic uh, approaches to North Atlantic that control the gap between the UK, uh, Greenland and Iceland, where Russian submarines and ships have to come through to get to North Atlantic. Uh, and also, Ireland, Ireland has a population of um, uh, Ireland has a population or two million men and women of military age. Uh, so, so the the the, the Brits the, the, the Brits look at this, and 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 they're not going to just uh, you know ignore that and uh, leave it to go its own way if they can help it. They, they they've never done that in their history. They're always always trying to shape the strategic environment to suit them at some stage down the road, and they play the very long game, and they're doing it right now. And uh, I think one of the uh, you know, unfortunate things about the Good Friday Agreement uh, and the way it's been played is that um, people see unionists in great discomfiture at losing their sectarian supremacy and think we're winning. But, uh, the, you know, as a Republican, we're, we've only won when we have no uh, uh, British-Irish cleavage in our national loyalties baked into this country, that we have uh, national unity across the sectarian divide, and a national democracy within an all-out republic. That is our goal. And we can never achieve that until the British connection is ended. Mm. And so then would you agree in terms of this debate going on, say, like as I said, between the, the, the one stated in that book, Agents of Influence, which was that uh, the use of informants and agents were able to steer the IRA to the Good Friday agreements. And then there's the other side, um, which I'm kind of, I, I have an idea of where you might lean, but this book by Thomas Leahy, I think, you know, which says that 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 was actually not the case, that it was sort of Britain was, uh, you know, put into a stalemate as well with the IRA, that they had to fully assess where they were at. And Operation Banner, which was the military name for, you know, what they did during the Troubles, a 30-year military campaign, which I think was the longest that the British Empire ever had to fight in modern era, right? Um, uh, where do you lean on that? Do you, do you think? Well, well, first of all, there was no stalemate. I mean, the British had com complete command of the strategic landscape across the board. You know, they had they had they had us completely infiltrated. And um, uh, only in a, a small enclave in South Armagh, in the Cross Glen area, was the IRA on top of the situation and on top and, uh, and able to outfight the Brits and outmaneuver them. Very, very small little enclave. Other than that, you know, uh, I think the Brits were uh, very much, they were able to go anywhere, anywhere in Ireland they needed to go. We, we, we were tied down. There, there was no stalemate. I mean, you know, you know, we got in, you know, they talk about the, the Libyan weapons that came in. It's 85, 86. It's no secret. I mean, a massive amount of weapons. We uh, given us a capacity that we couldn't have dreamed of in our wildest dreams that we had suddenly acquired. And if you look at the statistics from getting those weapons in 85, 86 to the, to the ceasefire in 1994, British military police and army casualties went down every single year. So what does that tell you? I mean, there's a clue there somewhere, right? Uh, there was no stalemate. We were infiltrated, and we returned to an internal settlement on British terms. Now, they're doing very well uh, in the South in elections because it's, it's nothing to do, I don't think, much with United Ireland. It's, it's all it's other factors with the youth and housing and stuff. 
But you got to remember, um, you know, Sinn Féin might be riding high right now, but in in 2019, they lost half their council seats in the south, and, the, and they lost two two of their three European seats. So, I mean, they've taken a position now where, you know, their position seems to be now, if you ride every horse in the race, you can't lose. Uh, that only gets them so far. You know, they're a party of protest, and, uh, you know, their tails are up. But, you see, here's the thing, and I don't want to be specifically against Sinn Féin, but, you see, they're claiming to be the Republican Party, and they don't have a Republican message. Uh, they've openly said, that they will discuss, uh, you know, changing the national flag, changing the national anthem, rejoin the British Commonwealth. They've said all that. Mary Lou MacDonald one time was on record as saying she would discuss flying Union Jack on certain days over Leinster House. Now, she later backtracked and says, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that, but I would discuss it. But I mean, you don't discuss flying a foreign flag. It's not a matter of, do you think the Brits would discuss flying, flying the tricolor over Windsor? Do you know what I mean? At That'd, some be nice. stage, <laughs> that'd be nice, but you know, uh, yeah, it would be nice, but <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Uh, the, you know, they're not pushing a Republican message. They're pushing the message of the Good Friday Agreement, which was uh, a pacification, pacification strategy that opened career paths for a lot of people. And I said to you, you know, at the beginning of this uh, talk, that if you play the game by the Brits, they will pay you to oppose them. You become the paid, the loyal opposition, right? Um, the, the provost have come to recognize Stormont as legitimate, uh, that Stormont, which is a, a totally dysfunctional, uh, regional, regional assembly of the Westminster parliament never operates. It's just, it's a basket case. They've recognized that as legitimate government. They've recognized, uh, Her, his majesty's constabulary in the North as lawful authority in this country. Uh, no Republican has ever done that. So, um, people might say, well, who cares? There's peace. Okay, um, that's an argument, but it's you know it's not it, you know I mean the 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 reason there ever was violence now in the first place it's not because Republicans demanded freedom it's because the Brits denied it you know the Brits invaded Ireland we didn't invade them you know they partitioned Ireland they they ethnically cleansed it and they planted it they 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 brought the divisions into this country and. Uh, they're still trying to keep them intact. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that is the root cause of, of, of violence uh, in Ireland, you know, uh, from a Republican perspective, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we are where we are. Uh, I'm glad, don't, 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 don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I mean, when it comes to what they call the peace process, now I look at it as a pacification process, but, you know, without splitting hairs, you know, that what they call the peace process. I'm not against the peace. I'm glad there's peace. And I'm not advocating a return to armed struggle. My mm -hmm. criticism is, uh, is of the process. We have to look at the process. And if, if one is a Republican, one has to be critical of a process that cannot lead to a republic. And if one remembers what a republic is, in, in the Irish context, it's, it, it's, it's a national democracy within an all-Ireland republic. And it, it represents national unity across the sectarian divide, an idea that was first thought of by Protestants. And it was a Protestant who wrote a nation once again. There's a Protestant who led the 1803 rebellion, Robert Emmett. You know, uh, Protestants have been through all our history, some of our greatest patriots. But those are Protestants motivated by the Enlightenment. It's Protestants who are inspired by the plantation, by, by sectarian supremacy, by colonial conquest, who, who, who are at odds with us when we want to talk about, you know, you know 
developing a, a national democracy. And they're backed by a foreign government, a very powerful foreign government. That's the right. problem. You know, they haven't won, they haven't won by force of argument. Their, their position is there because of the argument of force. Right, that they were, uh, you know, coming from the planter uh, tradition and 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 being used then later, as you said, as a excuse me earlier, as you said, uh, you know, proxy armies, the loyalist, uh, loyalist you know, yeah. par paramilitary groups. Um, but um, so we we've been speaking of this within the context of the um, British uh, uh, colonial empire and and their legacy of violence. Again, to name check that book. Um, uh, which is is a you know it's a different history than um, some book, by the way, I got the book. I just haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I got it about three weeks ago. But I am going to read it this month. Um, and of course, that book detailing uh, you know some uh, a list of of countries that that Britain you know invaded and 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 um, legalized their lawlessness in you know Ireland just being one, but Ireland being the first. And yeah. as as the adage goes, may also be the last colony uh, yes. to break free of, of Britain. Let's hope not. But um, but within that context, you know, we speak of informers, et cetera, et cetera, and and uh, secret military uh, intelligence. Uh, mostly, the emphasis is put on obviously British military intelligence infiltration of the IRA. And then the Irish uh, special branch uh, police, which Sean O'Callaghan was a an informer for, but then also British intelligence as well. But he was working double duty, I suppose. Um, but you mentioned in your book about how after um, you know you 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 were busted with the uh, Valhalla uh, run. You spent ten years in, in prison. You came back out. And and then you you went back out into operations and uh, you you were going to do a, a false flag operation in London uh, with the appearance of uh, bombs Semtex bombs at six electrical stations or substations uh, utilizing icing sugar because that looked like on X-ray a look like a Semtex and um, you know that that sort of and to 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 shut down uh just operations for a day or half a day in the city of london uh you and 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 your comrades figured out that that would actually cause a lot of tumult for yeah. the the financial sector of yeah. of uh london it and um economic uh, target and and um you know ba based on two two previous bombs that were you know quote unquote spectaculars um which should be noted like uh, an extremely low uh, uh, human casualty rate, which of course my position, and I'm sure yours, but I know mine is any loss of human life is a tragedy, but war in and of itself is tragic. Um, the war warnings were given. I know, I know in one of the case, uh, a photographer got too close and uh, he was killed, but I mean, warnings were given, you know, so that's unfortunate. Yeah. When you were you were um, busted for that, you guys didn't get a chance to to uh, uh, implement the operation, and and um, you, you you stated that you believe that there were, or you probably learned that there were at least sixty surveillance uh, uh, officers for each one of you you guys out there. Uh, well, that... yeah, when when we went out to do anything, there there have been maybe sixty surveillance officers on us and four teams of fifteen, and so. 
Yeah, the, the entire resources of the UK state, what they had were, were on us. Entire resources that they had. Then you re imprisoned, uh, you're in jail, and you got a strange visit from uh, 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 two Americans, uh, yeah. a woman and a man. And um, the, uh, the, the woman said she was with the State Department. Uh, agency, I think. Sorry, yes, not the State Department. Um, the man said he was with a different agency, which I took to mean the CIA. Right. Now, could, yeah, could, could, with that, John, so, so basically you, you took away that this mysterious fellow um, with a with an easygoing smile and dressed in a certain way, um, you know, basically told you, John, I'm with a different agency. I've been following your career with some interest. Um, and, you know, please, you can tell us everything about the bomb and we'll 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 take you out of here. We'll fly to the United for a new life in the United States tomorrow morning. We're prepared to offer you a lot of money. And then he leans forward and says, John, a lot of money. All you have to do is tell us where the explosives are hidden. And then, of course, you went through the channels of, of, of telling your lawyer and also uh, fellow IRA comrades like, hey, this guy is, you know, trying to say some shit. But you you now he didn't tell you that he was with the CIA, though, right? No, he said I'm with a different agency. But I mean, it was clear he was with I mean, a different agency only means one thing, you know, the CIA. I mean, you know what I mean? He was trained to recruit me for intelligence. Now, he told you that he was following your career with some interest, yeah. meaning that he was watching you for some time. Well, he was, yeah, he was following. I don't know if he was physically watching me, but he was um, he was up to speed on my, my files and my whatever intelligence uh, uh, was being gathered on me. Why would a CIA agent be interested in in getting all that information from you? Like for the, for, the, for the British, the number one allies. Mm -hmm. But I also, I also said it crossed my mind it could have been a false flag operation. He could have been MI five or MI six, claiming to be American in the in the in the in, uh, on the um, on the presumption that I might possibly work for the Americans, but they knew I wouldn't work for the Brits, you know. But I wasn't any information on our operation to anybody. I didn't care where they were from. But uh, you know, I had the impression he was. CIA, but um, when he said I'm with a different agency and I'm following career some interest, he was obviously in, in the intelligence field, and I don't know anybody, any organization in the states that calls themselves the agency, you know, except the CIA. Hmm. So um, he uh, he was trying to recruit me, recruit me as an agent, as an informer, you know. Uh, but uh, I said no, so went back to do my 35 years, and then I found out the next day the IRA called a second ceasefire. So that's why they. They were so anxious to see me that day because I didn't know anything about another ceasefire. I didn't know another ceasefire. I thought I was going to do 35 years there. Mm -hmm. I had no, I, well, I had no reason to believe otherwise. That's interesting. So it, it could have been just yet another ploy. Uh, yeah. But also, yeah. as you mentioned, the, the, the close relationship between uh, CIA and MI5. Which... Well, you know, you know if, the, if the Brits wanted me to, to give information, they would have, you know, the Americans would have cooperated with it and say, look, bring this guy to a new life in America, give him loads of money. And if he tells us what we need to know, that's okay. Let him over there and give him a lot of money. And once we know what we know, who cares? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, you know, well, I, I couldn't go back and live in Ireland if I became an informer. You know, I couldn't go back and live there. I certainly wasn't going to live in England. So I suppose, you know, it makes sense that they brought the Americans in. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I was an ex-U.S. Marine and all that, you know. 
Right. To and maybe I had, I had American citizenship. So so we've touched on the book here and there. I, I recommend listeners to to really go out and read it. Uh, again, it's an extremely exciting, enlightening, and 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 uh, interesting read. No matter what your your take is on the IRA and the troubles, the, it's a really well written book. And and I thank you for that, John. And and I wanted to just a- ask you this one last leave with this one last question: Is what does the future hold for Irish republicanism from a peaceful perspective. How do well, we move forward in this regard? Well, I don't think there's an Irish Republican Party at the minute that 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 is pushing Irish Republican goals from the from the from the from the percept, you know, from the um, from the uh, position of the proclamation and all that. It, it's all to do with uh, the Good Friday Agreement and all. But there's a lot of Republicans that think like like myself. I've been going around to book launches things. I meet Republicans all over the country who are thinking the exact same way. Like I, you know, we're we're all thinking the same way, but we're very, like somebody said to me one day, the Republican movement is like a painted glass that's been shattered into a hundred pieces, and each piece thinks they're the true Republican movement. But I mean, somewhere down the line, you know, I think the contradictions in the Good Friday Agreement have become more and more uh, apparent, and there may be, uh, uh, I hope, down the line, and I could see little kernels of hope. That there could be a Republican uh, Party formed, peaceful political, democratic political party that would make the argument for the Irish Republic as we believe it should be. Again, as I said before, a republic that has national unity across the Australian divide and has no no British content, no context. I mean, you know, they're act- they're talking about you know rejoining the British Commonwealth and the South and all to make Ireland more comfortable for unionists to make us more British. You know, uh, you know, we're trying to get rid of the Brits. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's possible. But at the minute, you know, it, at the minute, it's it's not a good place to be for somebody like like myself or you know people who think like me, because it's it's a we're we're, we're plowing a very lonely furrow at the minute. But um, all we can do is um, you know, try to keep the flame alive and you know. Uh, keep keep our beliefs, keep our principles, and hope that someday we'll have a chance to um, to uh, expand them more among among people, like minded people. You know. Thank you, John. Thanks. Uh, the book is called The Yank. The author is John Crowley. It's available on on all outlets and resources, and I highly recommend it. Thanks very much, Gabriel. Thank you. You've been listening to the Propanon Podcast on the fucking internet.